0: This is an ABC podcast. Norman, I was ready to start five minutes ago, but you had to go and make yourself a cup of tea. I know you like to think of yourself as a Scot, but I think you're a Brit. You
1: no know, Scottish people drink tea; but it's very strong, very black.
0: How do you have it? Black
1: tea. Nothing fancy. Oh, I hate the fancy teas. God, you know, no chamomile. You know, no <laughs> rosemary and raspberry. You know, you know, nothing like that. Just plain ordinary with a bit of milk.
0: Well, have a sip and let's do Coronacast. I'm health reporter, Tegan Taylor.
1: I'm physician and journalist, Dr Norman Swan. It is Wednesday, the 9th of March, 2022.
0: And Norman, today, Francis has asked a question about a big study that's come out that I wanted to talk to you about anyway, and it's about COVID and what it can do to the brain. But when I was looking back through the Coronacast library, I realised that one of our very first episodes, in fact, it might have actually been our first episode, was about whether the coronavirus could get into your brain.
1: Yeah. And this research doesn't actually confirm it one way or the other. I think most people think that the virus sets up a reaction in the brain, but it could well get in. But in fact, it's plausible that it gets into the brain from from this study in particular.
0: Either way, this study is showing changes in brain structure after COVID infection. How do they show that?
1: The problem with previous studies in this is that they've done brain scans of various kinds after people have got COVID and come to some conclusion without really knowing what their brains were like beforehand, and also probably not being fully, not fully controlling and understanding whether or not they had been infected. So what this was using the UK Biobank, which is an amazing study, very, very large study, looking at markers in people, seeing how they age, what diseases they get and so on. It wasn't invented for COVID. But what they had done for a sample of the people who had volunteered for the biobank, these are people who between 50 and 80, they had done scans of their brains when they came into the study. So they already had many brain scans. And therefore, they were able to pick up through records which of the people who'd had brain scans then developed COVID-19. And then they did second scans about 140 days or so after their infection.
0: So it's at like six months.
1: Yeah. And then they had, your, your maths is better than mine, mm-hmm. and then they did, it, then they did a, a repeat scan on people who hadn't had COVID-19. So they had two sets of scans, people who had COVID-19, people who hadn't, and watched, the, and watched what happened. Now what happened was they noticed that grey matter thickness had declined in particular areas, there was tissue jam- damage, particularly related to the part of the brain where which receives the signals about smell, and that there was a general reduction in brain size. And then they also did cognitive tests, or so thinking and memory tests on um, this group of people between the two points, and there was a larger decline in thinking and memory in the people who'd had COVID-19. And essentially, what they're seeing here is inflammation along the pathways in the brain of the smell pathway. And as we know, the loss of smell is one of the symptoms of COVID. Not universal, but it, it does happen. So what might be happening here, here's the hypothesis. The tissue in your nose that receives smell information is actually an outgrowth of the brain. So it is possible that the virus infects that tissue And the virus could spread along the nerves there or simply just set up inflammation that goes along these pathways about smell. Now, if it was only the smell pathway, you wouldn't be too worried here, but it goes into what's called the limbic system. And the limbic system is involved with emotion, with behavior, but also how we lay down memory. So what they see on the scan fits what they saw in terms of the cognitive decline.
0: dynamic is the brain they're saying that they're seeing changes in size and that sort of thing you can see that these areas have been affected does the brain recover over time from this or could this be permanent
1: well the answer is we don't know but the brain is much more plastic than we've given it credit for in the past so it is possible that over time this inflammation settles and that nerves regenerate which nerves do regenerate in the brain or new pathways in the brain developed to actually go around the problem and the damage. The interesting thing about this study was that they weren't absolutely sure who had severe disease and who hadn't. But when it comes to severity, the um, the results are mixed because there was, a very, there was a very small number of people who really had severe disease and who were hospitalized. There's a suggestion that it was worse in people who uh, had severe disease, but the numbers are so small that it's really uncertain. It it looks as though there was an effect across the board and it may have been worse in severe people, but it's unclear.
0: And is it happening in every person that's gotten COVID in this study or just in enough people to show that it's a risk?
1: They're not clear about that, but the way they've written it, it looks as though it's an increased risk And there will be people who don't have an effect at all.
0: Do they know whether people's vaccination status was protective
1: at all? Most of the people in this study um, had their initial COVID-19 infection pre-vaccination. So most of the follow-up scans were uh, done by the end of May 2021. So if you go back six months from then, proper vaccinations at scale would really not happen to a huge extent in the UK.
0: Well, hopefully there's more research coming showing that vaccination's protective, but I guess we'll have to wait for that one.
1: It's highly likely to be um, protective in this situation because you've got antibodies, you've got control of infection, you've got control of severe disease. But it does show that this is not a benign problem. And it could explain, if you get it to large enough samples of people, it could explain long COVID but it, or aspects of long COVID. But that's not clear at all from this study and that wasn't what they were looking at.
0: Well, Norman, it's been a minute since we've taken some questions from our audience, and we've got a few for you today. Justin has written in saying he's been listening for two years. Wow. Thanks, Justin, for sticking with us for this long. Uh, Justin's wife and he are both in isolation at the moment after both testing positive to COVID, but her symptoms are worse than his, and she suggested that he isolates in a different part of the home to avoid getting a worse infection. But Justin's saying, once you're infected, is it possible to get a worse infection? from close contact with someone who's got a higher viral load?
1: It's a really good question. There are lots of determinants about whether or not you get bad symptoms or severe disease once you're infected with COVID. Obviously, if you've not been vaccinated, the older you are, the more conditions you've got, uh, whether or not you're immune compromised, all those things affect your chances of getting severe COVID 19. The other thing that affects it is the dose of the virus that you get in the first place, which is probably where Justin's wife is coming from. But if you've already got it, I think it's unlikely that adding more virus will make a big difference because you've already got it and your body's reacting to it. I'm not sure anybody knows the answer to that for sure. I think that given the inconvenience of isolating two people in the same house when you've both got COVID-19, with the uncertainty of the science, i just go for it and isolate together.
0: Another question from someone who's sick with COVID and is pondering life, the universe and everything. Helen says she's currently sick with COVID. It's not fun. Wouldn't recommend it, but she's grateful for vaccines and a safe, comfortable home to isolate and recover in. But she's been thinking... The virus in her body is a direct descendant of the virus that infected people in the wet market in Wuhan. Presumably, if she's got Omicron, it's also been via Africa, possibly around the world, which she says is pretty mind-blowing. I have to agree. Helen's question is, how many people do you think this virus has been through to get to her?
1: Helen, this is a great question. The reality is, in terms of the survival of the virus, the virus doesn't last for three years. The virus lasts for fairly short spaces of time. Even when it gets into your cells, it just produces children of the virus and mutated forms of the virus. So the reality is there are the virus that you got is a descendant of the Wuhan virus in the same way as when you catch flu, most of the flu that's around is a descendant of influenza in 1918. And just think how many millions of people that flu virus would have gone through to get to you, but it's not the actual virus itself.
0: But like in terms of the chain of transmission from Wuhan to Helen, would there be millions of people in that line?
1: Uh, That's a really good question and possibly... Not, but we have grossly underestimated the number of people who've been infected. Is there a million people in a Congo line who've passed it through to Helen? We'll, we'll never know. I, I think you make a good point. It's probably more likely to be in the thousands or hundreds of thousands.
0: Worst Congo line ever.
1: That's right. Nobody's singing.
0: And a question from Louise uh, with another sort of philosophical question, I suppose. If there's every chance that we will all eventually get Omicron, is there an argument to getting it sooner rather than later, given that vaccine protection, even after the third shot, seems to wane over time?
1: Look, we get a lot of questions like this, and it's an important question. You don't want to get the natural infection because it's, despite the fact that I've just said there are risk factors for severe disease, there are younger people who are otherwise healthy who are getting severe disease, and Omicron is not a mild virus. It can cause severe disease. We've still got many people dying every single day. Each day, several times the number of people who've died in the floods, over the length of the floods. That's not to minimise those deaths, but each day we're doing several times that. So you do not want to get the natural infection. The evidence is that if you get the natural infection on top of the third shot, you do get a deepening of your immunity. And so that's kind of almost like a fourth booster but getting the omicron on top of two doses probably only just equips you to be a bit resistant to the next omicron virus that you get but even maybe ba2 could evade that a little bit
0: the other strain of omicron that's been hanging around
1: that's right the ba1 there's not a lot to be gained by getting the natural infection to be honest
0: make sure you're up to date with your covid shots by getting that third dose if you can and we'll see you next time yep see you then Hi, I'm Andy Matthews. And I'm Alistair Tromblay Birchell. And we're here to remind you that The Pop Test, that comedy science quiz show from Radio National, is back. Each week we pick a science topic and ask comedians and scientists important questions like... Why might you stir your tea at
1: 28,000
0: RPM? Where
1: on earth does time travel the slowest? And what's so suspicious about being left-handed?
0: With guests Sean McAuliffe, Claire Hooper, Cal Wilson, Dr. Alan Duffy and Sammy Shah. The Pop Test. Hear it now on the ABC
1: Listen app or almost
0: anywhere you get your podcasts.